Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So, Jonah, I'm so excited because do you know what today is? Um, Your birthday. Yes. Yes. Happy birthday, Vanessa. Thank you so much, Jonah. And I couldn't be more excited about today's episode. This is one of my all-time favorite singer-songwriters that we got to have on the podcast today. And I'm just very grateful to be celebrating my birthday and having this podcast and getting to talk to you every week, Jonah. Well, thank you. That's really nice of you to say. It's been really fun for me to do this podcast with you and to reminisce about all this stuff. And I am also so excited about this guest. So, yeah, we should get into it. Let's get into it. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. We're two siblings who love to talk about our childhood and nostalgia and how it shaped us into the people we are today. Who are very excited for today's episode, if I do say so myself. Welcome to How Did We Get Weird. So, Jonah, I was thinking about when we were kids and we used to hang out in this kind of hippie area of Cleveland called Coventry. And it kind of made us feel like we were pretty, I guess, awesome teens. Yeah. I mean, I used to go there. It was about a half hour away. And I feel like I would have mom and dad drop me off. (laughs) And it was just like where all the punks kind of hung out and like... 
at that time, a lot of kids smoked cigarettes and just sat around and no one had, you know, and it was just like a gathering place for like that community. And I think it used to be kind of like more of a hippie community in like the 70s. In the 70s. Yeah. And I used to go to my still favorite restaurant called Tommy's in Coventry with my friends. And then once I was on SNL, I got to go to Tommy's and they asked me to sign a menu, which was really incredible. And then my friend Jenny Binstock went there a few years later. She complained because I guess they had some other menus up on the wall, including Adrian Grenier from Entourage, but they didn't have my menu up. And she was like, guys, and I think it was just an oversight. They've always been really nice to me. They put it up later. And now you pointed out to me that I happen to be in the (laughs) kind of a sore spot for you, given that you're not in our high school's Hall of Fame. And I am. I happen to be in the Tommy's Hall of Fame. Yep. So a lot of bands, a lot of musicians. (laughs) It was down the street from the Grog Shop, which is a really big venue in Cleveland. So they got a lot of people, a lot of local celebrities, a lot of musicians. Yeah, so you are on the site. I'm on the site. Now, our guest today, we'll get into this later, is on the Interlochen Hall of Fame. We're very excited for our guest today. She's a singer-songwriter, an actress, an author. She's received multiple Grammy Award nominations. She's sold over 30 million albums worldwide. She won the sixth season of The Masked Singer. We're such huge fans. We're so excited to welcome Jewel. Hi, guys. Hi. Welcome. So, Jewel, I have this question for you that I've been wondering about for like 25 years related to Coventry. I remember this was like pre-internet people saying Jules playing at this coffee shop Arabica in Coventry. And I remember you sort of being on your rise, like too popular to be playing a coffee shop, but also like not as established. Like it was just kind of starting out. This is in the 90s. Did this actually happen? I cannot find any record of the internet. I'm worried I'm making it up. We also understand if you can't remember. (laughs) Yes, it was like a very long time ago. I was. I was there. What I did in the early days was when I got discovered, I was in a coffee shop and... I made a folk album at the height of grunge, which is, you know, not an incredibly optimistic outlook to think that will go well. (laughs) My motto was so sexy. Are you guys ready for my life motto? Yes. I don't know if you can handle the hotness. It's hard to grow slowly. It's very not sexy. It's just the idea that like, if you want to be around a long time, you have to grow slowly. And so I wanted to recreate what I had in the coffee shop where I was discovered, which was just this really hardcore, amazing, emotionally connected audience. And it was because I played there every Thursday. And so I went ahead and started to do that all over the country. And so I broke the the country up into regions and I would do loops. Wow. So I would do Ohio in a circuit. You know, I would do Cleveland and then Cincinnati and then whatever, probably going to some other states, but I did it as a loop. So I was probably at that place in Coventry, like every Friday night, you know, for like maybe a two month period while I was trying to break my career because radio wouldn't touch me and nobody would. I was just considered like a big joke. So it was kind of my big plan was just kind of this grassroots effort. Wow. What was it like when you were kind of transitioning, like getting too big for coffee shops, having to play larger venues? What was that kind of transition like for you? It was all really slow and a bit of a blur. Again, like nobody was quick to put me on the radio. So it was I think I did five or six shows a day. So like in the morning, I'd sing at a high school. Wow. And then I would do probably two record stores singing in parking lots. I'd probably do one to two radio shows in parking lots. Then I would open for somebody during that phase. It was Peter Murphy from Bauhaus. I paid him $500 to let me sing on his stage for goth fans that just looked at me like, what the fuck is this girl talking about? (laughs) And then I would do a midnight coffee shop show. So it was insane. I did 
over a thousand shows a year easily. And then it started to work. I think the switch was my first album failed. I started to make a second album. Then Bob Dylan wanted to tour with me and he liked what I did. And he was like, don't quit. Don't give up. Keep going. Stick with this record. And, you know, when you get marching orders from Bob Dylan, you say, yes, sir. And then Neil Young took me under his wing and he said the same thing. He's like, you may never be successful. Like you may never be on radio. He's like, but you tour and you build up your audience the old fashioned way. And you're either a singer songwriter or you're not. So what are you? And I was like, yes, sir. I understand, sir. (laughs) By the time I think it was when Conan put me on air that it started to really change. But I remember like that in between phase being funny because I was like in a shitty hotel with like stained, you know, you don't want to touch anything. And I was doing a radio interview on the phone and he was like, what's it like to be famous? And I remember looking around the hotel room being like, did it happen? <laughs> like, is, am I famous? Like, did, is, <laughs> shit, this is it? <laughs> That's incredible. So yeah, so you were touring around. It's so funny because for me, as like a fan of yours, I remember when Who Will Save Your Soul came out and it was such a huge thing. And I remember I was at overnight camp and my parents sent me like the cassette single, which had that song Near You Always, like on the back. I memorized both songs. It's just so interesting to hear about like your progression to that time because for me, I was just, she's so good. She probably just, you know, walked out and started singing. People were like, great. But, you know, now knowing having my own career, (laughs) not being... (laughs) and having gone through that I understand that that's it's a lot of work and that's not how it goes but yeah for me you know like I moved out at 15 I was homeless by 18 I ended up homeless because I wouldn't have sex with a boss and he wouldn't give me my paycheck so I couldn't pay my rent and my landlord kicked me out I was living in my car and my car got stolen I was having bad kidneys almost died in emergency room parking lots. They wouldn't see me because I didn't have insurance. Wow. It was a really vicious poverty cycle. I think the media painted that time in my life like she was living in her car to chase her dream. That plucky girl. That's exactly what I was going to say is like, that's the story that like I knew about you was like she lived in her car and then she made it big and you're like, wow, okay. And it was funny just to look back and be like, I would tell the press I lived in my car because my boss wanted to have sex with me and I wouldn't. And they were like, lived in car to pursue dream. And I'd be like, so interesting. Like, did they hear what I said? Now there's like a way for people to hear that information. But then people didn't even, right? they couldn't even process it. It was really a fascinating thing. Yeah. But when I got discovered, it was a complete accident. I was singing every Thursday night in a coffee shop, trying to build up this audience so that I could save first and last month's rent. That was my whole life's goal. And then labels started coming down and there was a huge bidding war over me. I was offered a million dollar signing bonus as a homeless kid. And I went to the library and got a book called Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business and it explained just the business. And I learned that the million dollars was a loan, basically. You you would pay it back through record sales. And the way the recoupment worked was there's only certain pennies on the dollar that would go toward recouping that million. So for you to recoup a million was very, very difficult. You had to sell multiples of albums to be able to do that. And I had been deeply unhappy, right? I moved out at 15 because my dad was abusive. I was having panic attacks. I was agoraphobic. While I was homeless, started developing exercises for myself that made a difference in my shoplifting, that made a difference in my panic attacks. I was getting happy. 
even though I was homeless, even though I had nothing, the inner liberty that I was starting to have, the freedom from the the prison, the kind of anxiety that I was in was lifting. And that was the most valuable thing I had. And I knew it. Wow. And I knew nothing was worth going back. And so I just was always kind of practical. And I looked at like, hey, Jewel, do you think that getting famous would help this whole situation you got going? Or do you think it'd make it worse? And I was like, yeah, probably worse. It'd probably make my situation worse. You know, I'm the kid that when you add fame, you become every movie you've seen about every celebrity. It should end quite badly for people like me. And statistically it did. And so if I was going to have a different outcome, I had to have a plan of why do I think I wouldn't be a statistic? Like, what is so different about me? What am I going to do differently to have a different outcome? And so I made myself a promise. I almost didn't sign the deal in general. I was like, I could just sing locally, make a living. We're good, you know? But if I was going to take on the extra stress of like, holy shit, a record career is like stressful and a lot of pressure. My number one job, I called them my North Star decisions. My number one job was to learn how to be a happy whole human and not a human full of holes is what I wrote down. And my number two job was to learn to be a musician. And under that, my number one job was to be an artist more than fame. I cared about art more than fame. Yeah. And so now I had two guiding principles to navigate every single decision by. And I just vowed that I would be loyal to those things. And I'm really proud to say I'm 48 and I've been loyal to those things. And it's been a crazy ride and a total shit show, don't get me wrong, but I have never betrayed that goal. And that's why I turned down the million dollars because that would have put a tremendous amount of pressure on an album I didn't even have yet. It wasn't recorded. Yeah. And I cared about authenticity more than fame. And so I made a folk album that was live in the coffee shop because I wasn't anything else. I didn't know how to play with a band. I could have had a fancy producer, but that wouldn't have been authentic to who I really was. Right. And so I made a really simple album at the height of grunge. And then, yeah, it failed spectacularly. But then once it started turning around, like after two years, this thing turned around and I went from selling 2000 albums in a year to selling a million albums every 30 days for over a year. It was insane. Wow. Like once it picked up, it was like bananas. But again, that promise, like it got so big and then I followed up with hands and then I quit, which nobody really knows, but I quit after spirit. I didn't realize that. I wasn't happy. Yeah. It didn't make me happy. I didn't like it. Yeah. I loved being a musician, but holy smokes, the type of famous I was, was, you know, you can't go anywhere. You can't cross yeah. the street. You can't go in a bathroom. You can't grocery shop. I didn't like it. It didn't work well for my number one goal, which was being happy. Yeah. And so I quit for two years just to give myself permission to be like, would I rather be a photographer? Would I rather go to school? I don't know. Like what would make me happy? And I realized I love music. I just didn't like fame. Yeah. But I realized in the two years I took off, my fame really plummeted and it was awesome. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> made everybody around me crazy. They're like, your goal is to be <laughs> you nearly killed yourself for this and now you're real and i was like ah, yep that's my plan i'm going to be less famous and make any music i want at any fucking time in any genre because i owe myself happiness and that's what makes me happy yeah but there weren't words like mental health breaks or we've seen people have psychological breakdowns i think mariah carey had one around then maybe or something right. and like i'm unwilling i am unwilling to have a mental breakdown 
for this dumb record cycle that you guys think I need to be in. But I was shamed for it, for sure, you know, by the industry, by the press. But you have to make those decisions based on those North Star goals and know that over an arc or trust, really have faith that over an arc, that is authenticity and it will pay off. That's so great that you had those goals for yourself. And it feels like you were so ahead of your time because now I feel like we understand so much more about like the mental health piece of it. And good for you that you knew what you needed. And, you know, obviously you had to face a lot of adversity growing up. And the fact that you came out of it with like, you know, you knew when that million dollar offer came on the table, you were like, I'm going to like look into this. I'm not just going to like go for the money. That's incredible. Because it can't be at any cost. Right. It just can't be. There is a cost. You know, it's not worth, that's why I said no to the boss and I paid a huge price, but it's not life at any cost. It's not paying my rent at any cost. Yeah. I have to say like I have a youth foundation and something I always tell them is when you invest in your character, it's like the most insane stock market. Right. I lost a lot. Like living in my car and becoming homeless was a terrible price to pay. Yeah. But I invested in my character. I invested in my humanity and it ended up turning into a career. I guarantee if I'd stayed at that job, I never would have taken writing that seriously. And I wouldn't had a lot of free time to do it because I would have, I worked, you know, to the bone to just pay rent and eat food. Yeah. So it ended up being a gift. It sure didn't feel like one. And it could have tanked me if I got really negative and started doing drugs and kept shoplifting. Like it could have ruined my life. And I could have pointed to like that bastard ruined my life, <laughs> but it didn't because I was able to turn it around and keep my chin up and keep saying, how do I get happy? How do I get happier? What am I willing to do to get happier? Amazing. I mean, I'm curious, you know, we talk about a lot of nostalgic topics on the podcast. And I think performing at coffee shops was such kind of a big thing in the 90s and other 2000s, which I don't think is a thing anymore. I don't know if it's because it's so corporate now with all the chains and stuff. I mean, how do you kind of look back at that era and that kind of culture of coffee house and art and performance? There was a neat minute where it really was real and there was mom and pop coffee shops. And you have to realize it was just before Starbucks. Right. It wasn't a thing yet. I don't think Starbucks is evil. It's just life changes. Right. And coffee shops each had their own vibe, you know, their own little deal. A few of them cared about artists. A few of them really wanted live music. A few of them even made a culture of it. And that's where you went to see people. The woman that had the coffee shop I got discovered in, I started at a coffee shop. I was a barista. My fr I had a, a guy got up and sang and he let me sit in with him. And that's the first time I think I ever played my own stuff out. And then he was trying to make a nude calendar. And I said no. But a 16-year-old girl who was a runaway, he just knew he had her. He just knew she was scared. And she was saying no, but she was a little bit tentative. And so I stuck up for her and I was like, fuck off. The answer's no. Leave her alone. He fired me on the spot. Wow. I was like, whoops. <laughs> like, oh, shit. <laughs> like that backfire. <laughs> so I went and sat down and this guy's at the table. I'm just sitting in shock. He goes, what's the matter? I'm like, I just got fired. He's like, do you need a job? I was like, I do. That's the fucker that asked me to sleep with him later, by the way. Oh, like, God. It was just someone get real? <laughs> real. And then I was trying to sing in coffee shops. And by this time, San Diego was a hotbed for grunge signings. Like record labels were coming to see grunge acts. And so everyone thought they were a discovery venue and they were charging artists to play there. Ugh. And I was like, damn it. Like, can I not just get like anywhere that would pay me to sing. And my friend Gregory had a big following 
And he was like, do you want to come and sit in on my gig? And I'm like, yes, yes. Do we get paid? Yeah, I need some money <laughs> living in my car. And he goes, yeah, it'll all work out. So I go there, we sing. It's packed. Not because of me. My friend Gregory packed this place and there was a door charge, $5 door charge. I go up. He's like, I'll get Mike, I'll go settle out. I grew up bar singing. So I knew how to settle out the whole nine yards. And uh, I go up to this woman. I don't remember her name. I would call her out if I did. And uh, I said, hey, like, how do we split the door money? I'm new here. And she goes, oh, we don't. And I go, come again. I was like, my friend Gregory, like filled this place up. Like, what's his cut of the door? And she goes, there is none. And I was like, oh, so we must be keeping all the coffee sales and all the food sales. That's great. How much did we make tonight? And she looked at me like, you don't get the food and coffee sales. And I was like, are you telling me we just sang for tips? Like, are you telling me we packed your place for tip money? And she said, yes. And I'm feisty, a little bit feisty. (laughs) And I remember sticking my finger in her face. (laughs) I was so upset for my friend. Yeah. What in the holy hell is this guy supposed to, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. I put my finger in her face and I go, I am cursing you. I did. I said it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I am cursing you. I'm like, you are stealing from the people that are helping you pay your rent. I go, you will fail. The word will get out that you are stealing from us and you will fail. I was like, I walked out dramatic. I was like, keep your tip money. <laughs> Later, I was like, why did I have her keep the tip money? <laughs> but then I found this place that was going out of business. And I was just was like, can you try and keep your doors open? And I want all the door money if I bring people in and you can keep all the coffee. And I was like, and we shook and that was it. That we made a we made a go together. Wow. Amazing. How was your latte art as a barista? Were you any good at it? I can't I can't get it. I couldn't remember how to do it now. Maybe I was good at it. I don't know. I mean, I'm so impressed by latte art, even if it's just a leaf. <laughs> yeah, I'm no, like, I didn't do that. That wasn't even a thing yet. <laughs> that wasn't a thing yet, right? No. No. I didn't even get my milk to froth hardly. You just got your goddamn coffee. Gen X, what's up? <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, yeah, because now there's like those frothing things. Like well, now you got oat milk, <laughs> coconut milk, <laughs> almond milk. It's, oat milk, it's, famously hard to froth yeah <laughs> oh my god tell me about it we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back with Joel. hacks is back for season three and so is the official hacks podcast in each episode hacks creators lucia and yellow paul w downs and jen stadsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the emmy-winning comedy series You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Jean Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. And we're back. So, Jewel, we had asked you for, you know, a nostalgic topic to talk about today. By the way, I'm still fascinated to hear the rest of your story. So I guess I don't want to interrupt that at all. But we chose the topic Cindy Lauper, which is something that I also feel very nostalgic for and really love so much. And I'm curious if Cindy Lauper kind of influenced you at all or, or why you wanted to talk about her today. I wouldn't say she influenced me particularly. I grew up on a homestead in Alaska with no electricity and right. whatever. And I moved to Anchorage for a little bit to live with my mom and MTV was a thing. And it was like Huey Lewis in the news, I think. Right. And Madonna and Cindy Lauper. And I just felt like you fell into one of two camps. You were either like a Madonna person or a Cindy Lauper person. And I feel like I did not connect to Madonna any way, shape or form. But Cindy seemed like authentic and spunky and like she cared and it wasn't just a contrived thing i always thought madonna was really contrived sorry madonna it's just you know, we never resonated Not for you but cindy was like this alternative of just like yeah i felt like she seemed really authentic yeah i was just re-watching some of her music videos and she is such a free spirit it seems like i also really loved her style and i loved like you mentioned jelly bracelets like all the jelly bracelets and just i as a kid would like make up dances a lot to songs and And so I remember True Colors being, even though I loved Girls Just Want to Have Fun, like True Colors was the the one that I really made up a lot of dances to. Do you remember that music video? I don't remember the music video. I know that song. It's just an all-time forever song. So good. Yeah. Yeah. She's on a beach. It's a really weird music video. There's these kids and she's wearing... It's someone who has such a huge imagination came up with this video, you can tell. And I also remember, because I didn't understand corporate culture at all, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a Kodak commercial that used the song True Colors. And I remember being just completely like blown away by the fact that a Cindy Lauper song was in a commercial. And it's a pretty intense commercial. Like It shows all these kids kind of like, I guess... 
for lack of a better term, like reaching their potential, like just doing <laughs> good stuff and like dunking a basketball or something. <laughs> yeah, like they're just like living their <laughs> best life. Sure. I feel like I really resonated with that too. Have you ever met Cindy Lauper? Yeah, we met at a Grammys once. I think she was sitting behind me and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and I was like, Cindy Lauper. Really lovely, you know, lovely, lovely person. We stay in touch. Wow. Yeah, and I think that she's a real artist and she's a real woman and not that other people aren't, but I think some people get stuck in images of themselves in my business and and other people don't get as stuck. And she didn't seem like she was stuck. She seems like she's alive in her life, you know? Yeah. She's a great advocate. Again, I hate to pick on Madonna, but I'd rather be Cindy Lauper right now than Madonna. Like, yeah. Watching Madonna's social media is rough. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't look like, whoa, it's hard. Vanessa, have you met? You met Cindy Lauper. I met Cindy Lauper once. She was on Seth Meyers' show. And I guess I was at 30 Rock. And they were like, do you want to meet Cindy Lauper? And I was like, yes. And I went into her dressing room and she had like, I couldn't really see her because she had one of those sheet masks on because she was getting ready to like, I don't know. And she was just so nice. And she gave me an album and I just, pink hair. It was like, she's exactly kind of, yeah, who you want her to be. I just loved her style. I mean, I've talked about this many times on this podcast that when I was a kid, I had short curly hair and I used to wear like thick yarn like around my head and like a million barrettes. So it looked like long hair and stuff. Yeah, it was so real. And a tutu to school, like just looked. And I think I was kind of channeling Cindy Lauper a little bit. And I just love that spirit. I think it sort of comes through when I was just watching her music videos again, like I was saying, like it really comes through that she was her own person. And I'm sure like you, like she really had to, like you were saying, I'm she's an advocate for a lot of other causes now and stuff, but she really had to like figure stuff out. It was to get your own kind of unique voice out there. I'm sure you really have to advocate for yourself. Yeah, definitely. You know, this business for sure. Yeah. Now, the other thing that Cindy Lauper kind of makes me think of that sort of, I guess it's not directly related, but like sort of in the 90s, there was also like all the Betsy Johnson stuff, like that that clothing. And I don't know. I just feel like that Betsy very Johnson Cindy had yeah. a Cindy Lauper-esque. Were you sort of inspired by that kind of stuff too? Were you into Betsy Johnson? I feel like you had like such a sort of unique sound and also a unique style, like very sort of, I don't want to put you in a box in any way, but. <laughs> just <laughs> very like what, chill and kind of like to me I was just like okay everything she does is so cool <laughs> but yeah yeah I remember seeing my video on MTV yeah and I think I was going to like the MTV Music Awards the next day and it was like Beck and everybody and I was like somehow I had the I've never watched MTV like in my career but I remember like seeing all these videos and then my little dorky one in the bathroom <laughs> Yes, in the bathroom. How did I end up on MTV? Like, Who will save your soul? Yeah, famously in the bathroom. What made you want to do that video in a bathroom? Or was that something that was... Something for me, you know, again, like when I was homeless, I was so lonely. Moving out of 15 is hard, right? It's very fucking of hard. Of course, I'm sure. And you tap into things that you have naturally. Like I was always naturally really independent, you know? So if given a choice of being in a cabin with a guy that's mean to me, or just being in a cabin. I'd rather go in a cabin. Right. But paying rent and hitchhiking to school and it was very hard. And for me, safety was being independent, being alone, being away. So fast forward to homelessness, very lonely. 
I didn't want to hang out with the other homeless kids because they'd lost hope yeah. and they were doing drugs. And I had vowed when I was eight to never drink or do drugs because I grew up in bars. And I was like, yeah, that doesn't work. That's not a great strategy. Like I'm seeing the end result and they're dying. And so being homeless was dangerous. Like you don't make it out of that all the time. And so being off by myself was like the strategy, but I was so lonely and I was like, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I kind of deserve it. I don't tell anybody the truth about what's going on. I keep the truth incredibly well-guarded. The only place I was honest was in this notebook that I wrote in. And so I was like, what if I tell the truth? What if I take the risk of, I think now what we would call being vulnerable? It was such a relief, you know, when I got on my first stage in my first coffee shop, it was two boys, two surfer boys. And I sang a five-hour set of the most gut-wrenching, emotional bearing <laughs> music you've ever heard. And they cried. Like these guys that I'm pretty oh sure just thought I was hot, you know, and like came in off the street. We were all just crying together. <laughs> <laughs> and the next week they told two more people came and then six more people. And the reason I loved that little community is it really was life-saving. I got to be authentic. I got to be myself. I got to be so flawed and fucked up and sincere and earnest all at the same time. And it was such a relief that I never wanted to go back, you know, and the, the risk with celebrity is that you play a part. I didn't want to play a part because that would make me feel like I was lying. It'd make me feel like, yeah, like I was lying. Like I had to maintain something that wasn't authentic to me. So for me, it was just authenticity at any cost. You know, that to me was more valuable than anything else, than being famous, than making it. And so just everything I did, I wanted it to really be who I was. You know, my record is really who I was. Yeah. I was not more talented than what was on that album. That was it. That was the level of my guitar playing ability, of my songwriting ability. It was really me. And that video was really me. You know, I came from Homestead where I shit you not, I carried around a Tupperware container of dirt because I was so homesick that I would just smell it. And I think in the video, you will see a thing of dirt. I don't know if anybody caught it. And I would go in the bathroom to pray and I don't subscribe to any religion. I'm all for all of them. I just would go in there for a moment to pray, to be quiet, to be still, to try and recalibrate myself of how I oriented myself in the world. And so the bathroom stall was like my little altar. And so that's what I made the video about. And it's where I watched people. It's where I wrote a lot of my lyrics was I would just hang out in bathrooms and watch people do heroin and get in fights and drag someone in by the hair. And, you know, it's gnarly when you're homeless. If you hang out in a bathroom, you just, you see a lot of life. It's like hanging out in a bar in a weird way. Yeah. Wow. Jill, I'm curious, like I work as like a mental health clinician and, you know, obviously you experienced so much trauma. It sounds like you're a child. Like, how do you feel like the trauma kind of, do you feel like your art was a release for that or influenced by that? Or is that, what do you think the role was maybe of trauma in your kind of own artistic vision? When I moved out at 15, I knew statistically kids like me repeat the cycle. I was really lucky because I had a philosophy class, amazingly, really young, probably in eighth grade. And so I'd wow. been in Kant and Socrates and Plato. By the time I was 15, I had read a fair amount. I knew this idea of nature versus nurture. And I realized my nurture was really bad. I would, didn't know the word traumatizing at the time, but I knew it was damaging. And it made me wonder if I could ever get to know my nature. That's a really heavy thing to worry about because moving out at 15, you want to think you might have a shot, but statistically you don't have a shot. So what are you going to do? What was I going to do that made me think that this was a good idea? It was actually very dangerous. So I should stay home. 
within an abusive dad if I didn't have a better plan because just moving out and thinking it would work out wasn't smart. Right. And so I spent a lot of time pondering it, really writing about it. And it scared me because I had this bunny named Caramel and it was raised with chickens and it acted like a chicken. It would peck at its food and it didn't hop normal. It had this funny waddle hop and it would lay on the nests for hens and it would hatch eggs for them. Super cute, but super frightening to think, what if I'm a bunny that thinks it's a chicken that will never get to know its bunny nature? How will I know my own bunny nature? And so I set off on this mission to see if you could lift the skin of nurture how could I get to know my nature? I was willing to presuppose that it doesn't just go away. And so that was so fascinating to me intellectually yeah. that it was like a thread to pull. And I wanted to see if happiness was a learnable skill. And so all my music was an extension of that very simple question. Is happiness a learnable skill? Is it a teachable skill? What if nobody's coming for me? What if I have to come for me? What if I have to save my own soul? You can see why I wrote Who Will Save Your Soul is my very first yeah. song. That was my first thing I ever wrote. I was 16 because that's what I was thinking about. Wow. Nobody else is responsible. I am. What if the buck stops here? You know, people living their lives for you on TV, they think they're better than you and you agree. Like, oh, like, you know, it was really me trying to make sense of this kind of pop culture idolatry and you know, it's funny looking back at the lyrics of I said, she says, hold my calls from behind those cold brick walls, says, come here, boy, there's nothing for free. I talked about the Me Too movement, but I flipped the roles as women doing it to men because it's what I was, I saw it everywhere. I saw the leveraging of power, whether you were male or female. So my career was about trying to understand my nature. Yeah. And my life was really traumatic. You know, being homeless was traumatic. And then my mom took all my money when I was 30. I ended up $3 million in debt as a 33-year-old. Wow. And it was, you have to read the book to understand what yes. happened. It's called Ever Broken. It's too much to get into, but I basically had to, as a 34-year-old, go back through my life and reassess every single thing I'd been told and whether it was true or not. And I had so much anxiety and so much had been done to like really kind of brainwashing that I didn't want to go to a therapist. And when I was young, I didn't have access to therapists. And then when I was older, I didn't want to let one have access to me. Right. And so I had to come up with tools that started to help reprogram me. And so just like that time of being homeless, I came up with a tremendous amount of behavior. I was very behavioral oriented. That wasn't a word that I was aware of, but I knew I needed to act differently for things to be differently. And for some reason, I had a freakish talent. I didn't know it at the time. But I had a freakish talent for creating behavioral skills that became an entire curriculum that now is a curriculum for public schools. It's a curriculum for my foundation we've been using for 20 years. Wow. During this time with after my mom, I had to come up with a whole other set. And one of the best things I'll just share, like, because talking about tools is so general, but I'll like share one, just kind of anchor into something. It suddenly dawned on me because we're talking about nature and nurture. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that allegory of the golden statue. It's a story about a village has a beautiful golden, solid gold statue. They hear a warring tribe is coming. They cover the statue in mud to hide its value. The war comes. It devastates the village. The villagers don't even think about the statue. Generations go by. A huge rainstorm happens. A child's at the foot of the statue and sees a peak of gold. And they realize they've been living with a solid gold statue for generations. For some reason, I'm very, very broken. My mom's betrayed me in the most ultimate of ways. I had to put a hold on my career, a mirror. Mirrors really seem to do epiphanal moments for me. 
I look in the mirror and I think of this golden statue and I go, your nature can't go away. Like your nature isn't a teacup that just breaks. It's there. It exists fully at all times. From what I know of quantum physics, like it doesn't cease to exist. Whatever right. it is, it can't, energy can't cease to exist. Okay. So what if I'm not broken? What if I just have to do an archaeological dig back to the golden statue? You know, that was a whole different thing because thinking you're broken and that something's wrong with you is a really fucked proposition. Realizing you're actually intact and you have to get rid of the blood and the hurt and the trauma and the pain and the betrayal and the suspicion, that's a big job, mind you. But you have to dig back to your authenticity. That felt doable somehow. I don't know why, but it felt doable because I started coming from this proposition of what if something's right with me? What if something's not wrong with me? And where that really comes into play was anxiety. What if I was that anxious, not because something was wrong with me? What if I was that anxious because something was right with me? What if my anxiety was actually meant something was working? Like a car alarm. Somebody's breaking into a car. The car alarm goes off. Don't get mad at the car alarm. Make sure that there's no robber. Food poisoning. made me. It made me think of food poisoning. Like you eat a bad piece of fish. You get violently ill. You throw up. Don't be mad that you're throwing up. Get curious about what you ate and don't eat it again. Yeah. So I was willing suddenly to presuppose that my anxiety was my body's only way of communicating that I was consuming something that didn't agree with me, that was making me sick. And my body was trying to say, I just consumed a thought, a feeling, or an action that made me sick. And could I get curious and observant and write down, what was I just thinking, feeling, or doing? So the amounts of anxiety, you know, panic attacks, agoraphobia that I've had in my life for <laughs> intense, I have gotten all of it to quiet down because of this one exercise of going, all right, I can tell in my body I'm super anxious. Rather than push it out and trying to avoid it, I'm going to get closer to it. I'm going to invite it in. I'm going to go, thank you. Something must be making me sick. What am I consuming? What thought was I just having? What was I just saying? What was I just doing? And then the trick is, will I stop doing it? That's where the real rubber meets the road in people's practices. You know, am I accountable? Does the buck stop here? Am I willing to stop making excuses of why I have to think that? Am I willing to stop making excuses of why I have to do this or why I have to tolerate this thing in my life? That's when you start getting a lot healthier. And so now I teach kids to use anxiety. Be like, no, 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 no. This is not a bad thing. This means something's really working. Your body is really communicating to you. All you have to do is use your anxiety as the map to find out how to improve your life. Wow, that's incredible. So those are the kind of the skills we teach yeah. on Fuel Never Broken. We're right now actually starting a new campaign. It launches really soon, actually. It's called hashtag you're not alone. But what we've developed over the last 20 years are mental health tools that work for people without therapy. I love therapy. I'm all for it. Just not everybody has access to it. And not everybody's honestly getting the results they want from therapy. It makes them feel better while they talk, but maybe their life isn't improving in the way that they want. I definitely encourage people if you're working with a therapist, what is your goal? Like, how do you know when it's yeah. working? 
you should have some metrics around it. You know, you should see improvements in your anxiety. You should see improvements in your ability to go out in public if you have social anxiety. And if you're not seeing those improvements, nothing's wrong with you. Right. You just haven't found the right tool yet. Yeah. And maybe you need a different therapist or maybe you need to be more into like a cognitive or dialectical or different types of modalities. Anyway, what we developed works without therapy. It's all behavioral based. It's practices like what I just told you. You know, write down what you're thinking, feeling, doing when you're anxious. Quit doing it. Come back to me and see if it works, basically. And so we're getting celebrities and CEOs. We'd love if you guys would join, actually. I didn't think of that. Little did you know you were getting pitched into these. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I'm sorry that when we introduced you, I talked about the masked singer instead of this. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, not a lot of people know about it, but we're just having people make 30 second videos saying, you know, mental health is at an all time crisis. 50% of people that need tools don't have access to them. So I'm donating X auction item, and we're using those funds to be able to scale proven tools digitally to people that live in mental health deserts. So that's what we're doing on that. That's incredible. That's incredible. Wow. When we post about this podcast, we'll put the link and all that stuff in in the description. But it's so amazing to hear your story and hear when I was 15, I had leukemia and I started seeing this. I don't even know what kind of therapist she was like when I was in my early 20s. And she told me that I had this thing called stress hardiness, which is basically like you take a difficult situation and you sort of thrive from it. Like you sort of go up from it as opposed to like letting it crush you. And it feels like if anyone is an example of that, it's you that you have this stress hardiness of like you took all of these things and you actually let them inform you and make you that. It's just like, it's interesting because so many people who didn't have the background you had, you know, got fame. And in some ways, not that you would ever wish for those things. It set you up in a way, or you set yourself up in a way that like, look at you now and you're doing all this incredible work and have some of my favorite, not only 90s songs, but 90s looks. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful Navajo proverb that says the obstacle is the path. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, the, the quickest way is through. And like what we teach our kids, we've worked with thousands and thousands of kids. I work with CEOs. I work with tons of people. And it's just sort of this idea that we have to be exposed to stress and we have to find healthy ways of dealing with it. It's like an immune system. I've never heard stress hardiness, but I love that concept because it's really true. It's like an immune system. If you overwhelm your immune system, you die. Like, We don't want to do that. You have to hopefully give it stimulation that lets your body rise, struggle get smarter. And then it gets exposed to something new and it struggles and it gets smarter. Our stress systems are that way. You you know, some things tank us. That's not ideal. But we have to learn how to transmute poison. You know, trauma is a poison. Right. Like you have to figure out ways of transmuting it and working with it and just continually working with it so that you can transform it. And it will transform into rocket fuel. You have to let those bitterness and the angerness. Yeah. Those things will tie you down forever. But those don't just happen either. There have to be practices. You can't just forgive somebody and you can't just stop being angry. You know, that's it's a practice of, of transmutation. That's what I love. I love that every bit as much as I've loved music. And the new record that I made of a new album called Freewheeling Woman. It's the first album I wrote from scratch in my whole career. By the time I did Pieces of You, I already had at least 100 songs to choose from. I have thousands to choose from. I've never had to make a record and write it. I've always just gotten to cherry pick like what songs I wanted. This one, I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be who I was now. And it's the first time in my life I've had to write it from scratch. 
I wrote 200 songs to get the 12 I liked because it was so hard to really, I didn't realize that I had tamed myself a little bit. There was like a ceiling or a floor would be a better way of saying psychological floor that I didn't let myself write beneath. My writing was proficient, but it wasn't in my guts. And so the kind of psychological dig I had to do, I see why middle-aged artists do a crap ton of drugs <laughs> to get their <laughs> artists, their new sounds, you know, because doing it the old fashioned way was a real gritty fist fight of just a new archaeological dig of getting back to something wild and authentic. And so the record, I hope, does what I wanted it to do, which was really show a 48-year-old grown-ass woman in the music business now with the life that I've had feeling happy and feeling empowered and feeling like I earned it. Because I didn't want to make a silly pop album or have to wear a little mini skirt. I wanted to be like, no, this is fucking empowerment, bitches. I fought for this. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. That's so great. As, as someone who's been doing this, has the same hour-long stand-up set since when I was 25, like... <laughs> <laughs> I can, I really have a lot of respect for you for digging in. And I'm sure it does sound different because it's you today. Now, before we take a commercial break, I have to ask you about something. There's a video that obviously I love your sound so much. I've always thought it was so unique and you have such an incredible way of singing that I think, and your music in itself is so incredible that I think a lot of people like to sort of, you know, that you've inspired a lot of people. There's a video of you on the Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey show <laughs> where you sing Who Will Save Your Soul with Jessica Simpson. And it really seems like she's channeling you. Do you remember that experience? Do you have anything? I just, you can just tell she loves you so much and she just wants to be you, but it must have just been so shocking. I just wanted to see if you have any thoughts on that. That was definitely a funny experience. Out of the corner of my eye, I just sort of saw a lot of gesticulation. And... I see, you can see you looking at her and kind of being like, um, <laughs> I thought maybe you... she was making fun of me. I was like, <laughs> Am I being made fun of right now? <laughs> Am I getting wrong? Yeah. And I was like, no, I was like, it's just actually really flattering. Like, it's <laughs> really bringing it and bringing the influence. And so I went with flattery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will say I had the same experience watching it. My friend Kate Mikuchi showed it to me. I had the same experience where at first I was like, is she making, like, how dare she? And then I was like, no, she just is such a fan of Jules that she's trying, because she was getting so caught up in it. And then it's like, it's so natural to you that seeing her, like, put it on, like, seeing her do her best Jewel was just, yeah. But I think it is flattery. I, I agree with you. I feel like if somebody, like, punked me like <laughs> on Saturday Night Live and, like, imitated me, that's how I would be imitated, you know? <laughs> like that for sure <laughs> i'm like it's fair fair yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is so everything you're saying like out of the court you can sort of see you sort of being like what is happening here but yeah i think she's just like me a huge fan and with that we're gonna take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with you all hacks is back for season three and so is the official hacks podcast in each episode hacks creators lucia and yellow paul w downs and jen statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the emmy-winning comedy series 
you'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit attcom hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, and we're back. So now we're going to play a game with you that's called Back to the Present. Joan and Vanessa, we've got to go back. To the present! It's just a really fun game where basically we're going to talk about something from our childhood or growing up that's nostalgic to us that we wish would come back and just kind of talk about it. So we'll have you go last so you have some time to think about what you would bring back from your childhood if you could. I will start. Oh, and this game is called Back to the Present, by the way, and it's a hilarious take on the nostalgic Back to the Future film franchise. The name is, by the way, <laughs> just in case. 
Okay, so my pick for what I would like to bring back to the present is there used to be a perfume oil bar at the body shop. I don't know that body shops are quite as popular as they were in the 90s, but there was this... They're perf- definitely not. They're definitely okay. not. There was this perfume oil bar where you could like try the different perfume oils. And I remember that all of my friends were really into white musk. Like that was the one that everyone was wearing. But I was into lilac because our mom was really into had lilacs growing up by her house and was always very pro lilac scent. And so I was always wearing lilac. My friends were always wearing white musk. But the thing that was just so cool about it was just these little oils. Like it was just you could try any one of them. I just had a blast with them. So it seems like neither of you really remember this, but um <laughs> getting two like blank faces over yeah. here. <laughs> you guys are like, uh-huh. But really huge. I support and, you though. No, thank you. Thank you. And and really I never was like quite a white musk person, but I really loved it. Okay, Jonah, what would be your... And I tried to find photos of it and they don't really exist, but I know I didn't make it up because people have written about it. Well, let me ask, Jewel, were you into any kind of sense like that? Like, I was really into punk, so I remember, like, patchouli was like... We were like, if someone is wearing patchouli, like, we that's not like cool with us. Like, were you into certain scents or anything like that or certain within your scene or anything like that? What age are we talking? I'm going to say 12, 13, because I also remember wearing a lot of CK1 around that time. For me, I had a weird childhood. You know, I was raised on a homestead with no running water and no television. (laughs) Your first concern wasn't like, what's my signature scent? (laughs) I mean, I was like Laura, except I didn't even know she existed. So... Yeah, I just had a really different, very yeah. uncommercial upbringing. So I just wasn't aware of um, the body shop's body uh, fragrance <laughs> bar. <laughs> I remember in sixth grade moving to Anchorage. And yeah, I think I was really overwhelmed with like all the stuff. Yeah. I remember the kids at school said I smelled like horse poop because I came from a ranch. I did not smell like horse poop, okay? I'm sure you didn't. We lived in the city. We weren't even around horses anymore. It's impossible. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But one of like the most worst stories of my life are from this time. And I think it has to do with things. So yeah. this is my only way to do even relate to the story that your guys' game here. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> my friend Amber who was so pretty and had like the perfect poofy bang and the short Diana haircut, like princess Diana, like, right, right, right. Rocked it. She was just skinny and beautiful, but like had boobs. And I was like, what? Like, what? I got boobs. How'd you get boobs? She befriended me and invited me over to her house. And she had things. She had like 80s sweaters. That was a thing. The 80s sweater was a thing. The plastic beads that looked like real pearls was a thing. Right. Leggings were a big, big thing with like geometric patterns. And she was so nice. And she let me stay alone in her house while her and her mom went out. Oh, my gosh. I robbed this bitch. (laughs) Y'all, I robbed this woman. Like... It started with just the wants of like this cute necklace was so cute. We were so broke. I thought she was so rich, by the way. She lived in a massive apartment building. She was like, in hindsight, she wasn't rich. But like, to me, I was like, she's rich. She has everything. (laughs) And I just was going to take this one necklace. But then it was like, oh, the sweater. And then it was like, oh, I went downstairs and got a garbage bag. And I filled it. It was like, I had a psychotic break. (laughs) And then I was like, I now have all these things and I have to walk home. I was walking down the sidewalk with a garbage bag of all of her prized 80s objects. And of course, her mom drives by and was like, I'm so busted. 
I mean, there was no really plan. Because I was going to say, because it would be hard to wear it to school anyway, because she would be like, that's my sweater I'm missing. That's my necklace I'm wearing. And the mom, you know, took it as what it was, a massive cry for help, which was even more mortifying because you're like, that's how pathetic I am. Like, she's not even mad. Like, that's a really bad place to be. It was total pity and kindness. I was like, oh, I must be in really bad shape. So, yeah, there was like some 80s things in there that I coveted. Clearly, it was a thing. Okay. 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 That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for being a good sport. That's an amazing connection. Jewel, uh, my pick you probably will re- relate to even less. It's uh, Dutch <laughs> apple Pop-Tarts. <laughs> I was just thinking about fall. Uh, I live in the Berkshires. It's apple season. I was doing some research on it. I always have trouble finding a topic for this. But yeah, Dutch apple was an initial frosted flavor. It was discontinued. There are some apple flavors like crisp apple. There's another like kind of donut flavored one. But there is a Facebook page dedicated to bringing back Dutch apple pop tarts. It doesn't have a lot of posts. The owner also of this page seems to really like Top Gun Maverick. They post a lot of (laughs) trailers for that. So I don't know. That's my pick, I guess. Dutch apple pop tarts. Who knows? I mean, how privileged were we that we're thinking about the body shop? I know. uh, But perfume. But I mean, I love pop tarts. (laughs) I haven't had one in a while, but. Don't I remember McDonald's having apple pies? Is that still a thing? That is. Yes. Yes. Okay. I remember burning my mouth many, many times on the hot apple pie at McDonald's. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Did I do it? Did I do one? <laughs> you did one. Yeah. You did one. It can still, <laughs> you just yeah. that stealing story. Yeah. 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 We topped it. <laughs> we topped it. Yes. McDonald's apple pie. Incredible. Well, this has been so much fun. We are so happy that we got to do this with you today. And it's really inspiring and incredible to hear your story. And you will always be like my true, I'm such a fan and just always wanted to be like you and to quote you, to be near you. And I got to be <laughs> always near you remotely today, always to be near you always. And yeah, if there was a Venn diagram of Vanessa's interests, like you and Cindy Lauper. And even for me too, I had my first cappuccino at Lilith Fair with Vanessa. And so yes, coffee, yeah. your music, it's all, it's all. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much for doing this. It's such a treat. For yes, us. yes. Such a treat. And where can people find your work and your, you know, all the incredible things you're doing? Yeah, I have a new album out called Freewheeling Woman. I really love it. If you're allowed to say that about your own work, I'm really, yes. really proud of it. Songs like Almost or Half Life, I think are things that'll really, you might really like. And then with my mental health work, my foundation's called Inspiring Children. We have a free mental health platform called Jewel Never Broken. I wrote a book called Never Broken and people were like, but what tools? And so I listed them out on this website. There's a really great community there. It's around behavioral based tools. I think I only have about 10 up, but it's an amazing community with book clubs and things like that. Yeah. And then we'll be doing the Not Alone Challenge, and that's notalonechallenge.org. And I want an auction item from you guys. <laughs> yes. Yes. We'll think of something fun. We'll think of something that be amazing. people will want to get. Maybe a signed box of Dutch <laughs> apple Pop-Tarts or something. Yeah. With jelly bracelets and body soaps. Like exactly. Yeah. Oils. Yeah. Totally. I think our mom still has one of her lilac body shop oils, but probably no one wants that. <laughs> because it's kind of like been sitting in our parents' house. A little creepy. If somebody wants it, we need to worry. Yeah. 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 That's not, that's not who's on this, who we want visiting the site. Yeah. 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 You're out. Wrong audience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. That was so much fun. Thank you so much to Jewel for joining us and to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed that, please subscribe to this podcast and keep an eye out for next week's episode where we'll tell more stories from our childhood 
episode and discuss more cultural milestones like coffee shop, music, Cindy Lauper, and all of those incredible things. Thank, thank you again, Jewel. We had just a blast with you. Thanks, guys. It was nice seeing you. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.